So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I would just say, well, it'll be up on the screen. You can follow along there. If you're a regular attender here, I would just encourage you to somehow uh, grab a Bible, bring it with you on Sundays, either a, one of those old-fashioned print versions or something on your device, but let me encourage you in that way. Um, but, but as we get going, let me just ask this question. How do we build for the future? How do we build for the future? Well, friends, this is a very important question, especially if you're me. And uh, I know we've talked about, you know, renovating my two bathrooms way too much. I promise you I wasn't going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. But you know what it's left me with is this insatiable itch to, like, walk around and demo something in my house, right? I'm just kind of walking around being like, this needs fixing. And there is this urge to walk out and grab a sledgehammer and just take out whatever said thing is that was bothering me that day. Now, the reason how should we build for the future is important is uh, because if I just start breaking stuff without knowing if it's a weight-bearing wall or uh, how much it's actually going to cost to replace whatever it is that I'm breaking down, right? Uh, that's a very important question to ask before I start breaking stuff, Right? Well, friends, over the course of the last two weeks, we're wrapping up this mini-series, if you will, looking at this picture of divided we stand. As the church in America, what you can observe very plainly is that very often on Sunday mornings, we can stand and in one outward voice sing praises together to the God of the universe, but internally, our hearts are divided among each other. There is no end to things to which we will pick up our weapons of verbal or emotional war Uh, or at least just even in our hearts, and sin against the person next to us. Self-righteously, judging other folks, being unloving, not having meals with one another, right? Truly, this is a time where we've got to wrestle with this reality that divided we often stand in church. And, And the question we've been asking is, how do we move from divided we stand to united we follow Jesus Christ? Well, the last two weeks, we've been uh, really uh, understanding, at least philosophically from Scripture, the underpinnings of, of how God has designed the church. And the first two weeks was really God doing demo. He took a sledgehammer of sorts to our identity, right? And that's the early part, really, of Ephesians uh, chapters 1 and the early part of chapter 2, where he said, hey, whatever identity you bring to the table that you think you can achieve, uh, it, it means nothing before me. In fact, the only identity that will save is the one that you receive, and that's the identity of His Son, Jesus Christ. So that was the starting point, His identity. And then we moved to a section uh, where we looked at uh, Jesus' literal demolition of the dividing wall of hostility that we have between each other. And saying, in Christ, through the blood shed on the cross, that dividing wall has been broken down, and He Himself is our peace bringing together different ideologies and tribes and tongues and nations. Well, today we move away from demo and we go, okay, so what's the foundation that we now need to lean into as we look towards the future? And so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, follow along with me. It'll also be up on the screen. But Paul writes this. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Let me pray for us as we get going this morning. Well, Lord, help us as we finish this small section of of looking at how you have mysteriously designed the church. Lord, this gospel made visible to to proclaim your truths to the nations. Lord, would you guide us, Holy Spirit, uh, in the searching of your word. Lord, help us to come to this with, with questions of saying, okay, Lord, how do we now then move ahead to follow you? as a unified group who have been saved by grace. Holy Spirit, again, these feel like touchy topics, and I pray that you will go with my words, Lord, protect me from uh, unneeded, unwarranted uh, offense. Uh, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, most importantly, that you would change all of our hearts, my own included, as we sit underneath your word. And so, Father, would you just go with us during this time, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so, so let's start off talking about uh, this picture of what does it mean to build and look forward. And, and verse 19 is kind of the control verse for these last three verses that we're going to look at. And, and in a sense, it's, it's this picture, if you could picture a funnel. Verse 12, it said, hey, we were at one point, we're aliens and strangers from God and from one another. And then in verse 19, we begin to see the shift that happens to us corporately, not just as individuals, but corporately. As we yield our lives to Jesus Christ and His work and His salvation. The top of the funnel is saying, hey, you who were once aliens, He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. And then that funnel narrows down a little bit more. And He says, not only are you no longer strangers and aliens, but you're actually fellow citizens. Friends, that was important back then. Paul, at one point when he's arrested, appeals to his Roman citizenship to get out of jail, if you will. And I know for, for many of us, we, we kind of assume how beneficial it is to be citizens of a nation, but it really is terrifying to be in a place where you are not a citizen, where you do not have certain rights. If you, if you want to explore that a little bit, go down and teach and grow in our ESL program and sit and listen to people who in many ways were uh, legally dropped off on the streets of our country going, oh, we don't have rights. Terrified. He's saying, not only are you not aliens and strangers, but there are rights of the kingdom and oversights and protections that the God of the universe now gives you. And then it it goes even more narrow to this intimate picture of, of us not only being citizens together, but in verse 19, you'll see that there towards the end, he said, we've been made members of the household of God. Not only are we no longer aliens and strangers, God is our Father. It is an intimate picture. It is also a picture that we've been brought into a household where we have new brothers and sisters. We're not only children in this household. And so from that, and really from that word household, there's a controlling theme that we need to unpack through the rest of this sermon. And essentially, um, household could also be read as house ones or house people. And the Greek term there is oikeos, O-I-K-E-I-O-S. And the reason I say that is because uh, the root O-I-K actually runs through several of the words that are used throughout the rest of this passage. It's the root of the term alien, which is kind of the the anti-house dweller, right? Sojourner, it's kind of a, a houseless person, if you will. But as you read through, it's also the root of the word built in verse 20. Structure in verse 21. In verse 22, where it says built together and dwelling. Again, it's the same root. 
And so the question we need to ask of the text today is, what does it mean to build well? Because that's really what's in view here. What does it mean to build this household of faith by grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are now a part of? Well, eventually, at the end of the day, I think what Paul would say, and this is going to be no surprise to you, is he's going to say, Christ is our sure foundation, and so we build on him. So what does this look like? What does it mean to be built well? Well, it means two things. It means to be built tough. That's verse 20. And then secondly, to be built together. That's verses 21 to 22. All right, built tough. What do we mean by being built tough. And that really comes down to this picture of foundation. You'll see that word there in verse 20 where it says, Christ is our foundation. And and this is important, right? As a household, how we build out matters because there will be pressures that are placed on the church. You know, pandemics, politics, injustices. How does the structure hold up in that? And the picture I always have of of a firm foundation is, is from uh, my mom's house. She owns a home on the beach there in Virginia Beach. Actually, it's, it's a, across the street from the beach on the Chesapeake Bay. So you've got water, and you've got a row of houses, and you've got a street, and then you've got my mom's house. And, and what's happened over the course of the last 20 years is we've watched people come in and push down these little beach bungalows that were right on the water and build these two and three million dollar homes. And the first thing that happens after they clear the land is they bring in these huge wooden pilings and a crane. And the piling goes up and the crane gets on top and it's this little air hammer and it goes, it just does that for two days. It does this. And by the way, when you live across the street, (laughs) that's a long two days, y'all. It's just like, you know, you just get rattled every few seconds. I found out from someone who's an engineer in the first service, what they do is they pound that in until it hits what's called refusal or the bedrock, which means it goes all the way down. And the reason that's important is because you need that firm foundation to build the rest of the structure around it because there will be storms that come. Tropical storms, nor'easters, and hurricanes. And so that's where Paul begins to say, how do we then build forward? And he's saying, it's, it, we have to build on a firm foundation. So here's the foundation that he points us to. It is the Christ-centered Word of God. It's the Christ-centered Word of God is the foundation. And the reason I say that is in verse 20, you'll see, he says, this church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, the simple definition of an apostle is a messenger. But most clearly, or at least theologically, in the New Testament as we read, an apostle is someone who was specifically commissioned by and sent by Jesus Christ. And so these would be folks like the disciples, right? As he sends them out on the Great Commission. These would be folks like the Apostle Paul as he meets them on the road to Damascus. And he says, I am sending you out as my messenger to the Gentiles. Now the other word in there is the term prophets, and that one is a little more debate to it. Some people would say the apostles' lead is pointing to the New Testament writings and the prophets is pointing to the Old Testament writings. But again, that's debatable in part because of the word order, right? It comes after the apostles. And some people would just say, hey, he's, he's talking about the words of the apostle in the New Testament. In a way, it doesn't matter because in essence, what he's communicating is that the first authoritative recipients and proclaimers of God's revelation of Jesus Christ were these mouthpieces, apostles and prophets. And their authority is represented now to us in the written and inspired words of Scripture. 
So that's the first part of the foundation is the Word of God. But, but there's an important caveat that we can't miss in the second part of this verse. It's not just God's Word, but it is the Christ-centered Word of God. And I say that because at the end it says, the foundation is built on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. All right. So God's Word is that foundation, but that foundation... Uh, moves outward from the true cornerstone of Jesus. Now, uh, back then, when you were building a foundation, you had to pick a good stone to put at the corner to build the walls of the foundation out from and the walls of the building out from. And so uh, you had to pick one with good angles and flat surfaces because if you pick the wrong one, it would be crooked, right? It would be a, a foundation and a structure that wasn't sound. And so the point here isn't, hey, uh, it's just all about the Bible. No, it's all about the Bible as it moves out from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the stone in which every other stone is determined by. In 2017, engineers began to submit reports to uh, the local municipality that there was a condo um, there in Florida that uh, was having problems, right? Uh, they, doing research, found that there were missing columns, right? They were cutting costs in the early going. And so there was a couple of columns that were left out that were troublesome. Uh, there was also a lot of reports of water damage. This water damage came from surfaces that were improperly sloped, right? So it didn't drain well. Uh, there was water damage from storm surge. It would come under the ground. It would kind of uh, eat away at some of the concrete that was found there. There was also these planters that had palm trees on it uh, above the parking deck where the roots would actually dig in uh, to some of the concrete and and erode it. Uh, There was bad waterproofing that happened over the course of time. And then they also found out on the east side of this building, um, they, instead of having the normal size columns underground to act as support, they, they shrunk the size, right, made them more narrow, and they put a little bit more steel or rebar, I guess is what it would be, if I'm wrong, you can construction and engineer folks correct me afterwards. But um, basically, the ratio of concrete to steel, which I didn't know was an important thing, uh, was off. So it was weaker than it should have been. In the New York Times, there was a report recently that said a lot of these studies are beginning to reveal how design errors, last-minute changes, dubious construction practices, and years of works, worsening deterioration all contributed to the collapse of the Surfside condo in South Florida, costing the lives of 98 people. I don't know if you saw that in the news earlier. I think it was this year. Uh, The horrifying picture of a condo in the middle of the night just collapsing. The point being here is the foundation is critical. It's critical. And we know that in our homes. We would not build a home that did not have a solid foundation. When you see cracks... You begin to worry, you may move out of that place. We think about it in buildings such as these, but but what's interesting is we don't often think about it as the foundations of our own lives or the foundations of the church. But I think what Paul is pushing us to do here is to consider the foundation that we're building on and whether or not it is faulty. Can I give you a couple pictures of, of some of the false building that we tend to do in the church. Well, first I'm going to start uh, for those of us who, who may not have much experience with the church. And, and I would just say um, there is a danger of building our lives on things that are um, finite, 
temporary, right? Part of the created world. That was, that was exactly what we were leaning into in the book of Ecclesiastes because all of those things eventually that we build our lives on apart from the one true God and Jesus Christ will eventually crumble, will leave us sitting. But here's three things I want to just run by you in the church uh, that even if we go, hey, I'm, I'm building my life on Scripture, I'm owning my Bible, I'm reading, I'm in it, but even in that, there's some of that water damage that can begin to creep in and erode. And sometimes we may find that we've built a foundation, yes, even around God's Word, but, but actually doesn't have that central pillar of Christ anywhere near it. Here's a few of those things. And let me read this. I don't have it up on the slide, but uh, this is a passage that just continued to capture my imagination. I think in part because when I finally read it two years ago, I felt like I was reading it for the first time. But, but it really helped my mind and heart get to the point that Jesus is really the point of every single page of Scripture. Here's what it is. It's Jesus walking up to a bunch of religious leaders who owned their Bibles. They know the Bible far more than any single person in this room. But here's what he said. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is it is them that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's walking up to these religious leaders and said, "You, you own God's word. And that is a good thing. However, if you read your Bibles and you miss me, you have missed the Christian faith. You've missed Christ entirely. And so here's some false building that maybe we can do. The first is rule building. Rule building. Now, now let, me, let me caveat this by saying, uh, you know, even our own confessional standards say, hey, uh, what the Bible is, is it tells us what we are to believe about God and what God requires of us. And so I never want to minimize the fact that God does, if we uh, have been uh, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, he's saying, now, here's what God requires of you. Go live this out. However, we can also tend to build our own rules that we can't find in Scripture, in part because uh, we're trying to earn our own rightness before God, and that's what these groups of religious leaders were doing. You know, the Pharisees, which is this group that it's referring to, they didn't start off bad. They get a, a, a bad reputation in part because I think Jesus hammers on them pretty hard in the New Testament. But if you go back three or 400 years to the time in and around, oh, I got my dates off, but the Maccabean Revolt, the Pharisees were the group of people saying, we need to get back to the Word of God. It's why we're in captivity. It's why we've experienced the things that we've experienced. And so they were zealous about God's Word. But over the course of time, they just started adding layers of laws. Right? Just saying, hey, we want to make really sure we don't violate God's Word. There's a real danger in that because over the course of time, as we see in the Pharisees, uh, they've kind of built their own religion in which they don't need Jesus at all. At least they don't think they do. Now, I grew up in one church setting where if my hair was too long, that was sin. If I had an earring, that was sin. If you touched alcohol, that was like one of the most ultimate evils. And I will just tell you examples like that are extra biblical. You can't find that or prove that from God's Word. Rule building is a dangerous type of building. The second one is case building. How many of you walk away from a time in the Word or maybe in a sermon and go, oh, this is a good one for that person. Oh, this is a good one for those people. I'm going to send it to them. i just send it. They need to hear God's Word, right? Friends, if we walk away from our time in the Word and, and all we can come up with is the cases we've built against another person 
or another ideology, we're probably missing Jesus. We're probably missing Jesus. Can I just tell you how Jesus himself and the authors of the New Testament talk about our interaction with him and his word? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it tells us what the word of God actually is. And again, it's pointing us to Jesus. He said, long ago and in many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? That would be the Old Testament writings. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so as we read what the apostles wrote about Christ in the New Testament, that word is pointing us constantly to Jesus. And as we engage with that word, do you know what it does to us? A little bit later in Hebrews, a couple chapters later, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Friends, we need to philosophically know that as we build on the foundation of Scripture, it's not for us to turn around and howitzer and gun other people down with our own beliefs and build our false religions. No, as we read Scripture, it's reading us. It's peeling back the layers of our heart that's in rebellion against Him. Let me look at the second part. Second main point is we are built together. We are built together. And we're going to pick up in 21 and 22. And 21 and 22 are really two parallel clauses that start with this word in whom. In the Greek, it's the same idea. So, so it's communicating one idea, but in two different ways. And so the first way we see it there in 21 is this picture of the church is being built on a united purpose. United purpose. It says we are joined together and growing in 21. And, that, and what that really is is a picture that the church is both a structure, right? We're bricks in a wall being held together by mortar, but that picture of it growing also shows this organic dynamic that we're really inseparable from one another. And there's two terms I want us to pay attention to. It says we are being built together as a holy temple as a holy temple. Here's what those two words are referring to. Holy is this picture of something that is set apart for God's unique purposes. When you see the word holy, whether it be a sacrifice or a temple or a person, he's saying, I am setting you apart for purpose, for my use. And part of his setting apart a group of people to be the church is that we are a holy temple. Now, we could do a year's worth of sermons on what the temple is and, and what happens there, but simplistically, it is a place where God is worshipped. And as you look back in places like Isaiah 66, and honestly, I, I think I put the wrong verses up on this slide, so let me, let me just go back and muddle through this for you real quick. But if you go back to Isaiah chapter 66, let me find it. If you go back to Isaiah 66, you see kind of the purposes of the temple. He begins to talk about the temple as the temple mount. And he goes on and he says, They, the nation, shall come to see my glory. And I will set aside among them, and I will send survivors to the nations, to all these different nations. And they will come, and my glory will be declared. And it goes down and it says, I will bring them to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, which is the temple. Friends, the temple, the picture of the temple is it's God dwelling with his people and it's where God's people come to worship. And what he's saying in Isaiah 66 is eventually the temple is the place where all people, every tribe and tongue and nation, 
the Gentiles, right, the non-Jewish folks, which most of us would fall into that category, will come and under one heavenly roof worship him for all of eternity. And so, friends, let me just say this. The, the main purpose that the church serves is to be the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nation, to every person alienated from God and one another, to bow the knee and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, applicationally, I, I, I want to be clear, and I want to kind of push against some things that, that churches, and I think we could probably fall into some of these ditches as well, can build off of other purposes that I think are false purposes. Let me say this. The purpose of the church is not to become a bastion of conservative or progressive politics. My prayer is that we never back a candidate. Ever. My prayer is that we always back Jesus. The church is not in existence to be a nationalistic church. This church is not for the gospel going forward just in America. The gospel is universal. Therefore, our call is to be universal. And friends, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we don't live in a great nation where we have unbelievable freedoms. I grew up in a military town. Every single one of my relatives, male relatives, have been in the military. Normandy, POWs in Japan. I do actually understand the great cost we have to be able to do what we're doing right here. So please don't hear me minimizing it. But philosophically, it's actually pretty intentional that there is not an American flag on this stage. It's because the gospel is global. And the gospel is universal. And that is the purpose to which we pursue. The church is not called to be laser-focused on any one social justice issue. Is justice important and critical and an outworking of the gospel? Absolutely. But first and foremost, it's pointing us to the God of the universe who loved us even when we were unlovable, even when we didn't deserve what we received. And it is from an overflow of that that we go out and we pursue justice. But it is not the purpose of the church. My prayer, my prayer is that we grow to become a church where every sort of person alienated from God and one another experiences true belonging, true forgiveness and redemption and restoration. And in one voice, without divided heart, worship the God of the universe and make Jesus famous. Finally, there's this picture of a united home in verse 22. Oh, I missed that. I don't even know where I am anymore. Okay. 2.22. It's this picture of a united home. It says God will bring us together into a dwelling place. This is kind of the the tipping point of this whole passage. He moves us from being aliens to a place where God himself dwells. And we not only dwell there individually, but together, corporately. 
And let me just say this, and let me read this. We're not going to get all the way to this passage. But in Ephesians chapter 3, it's back here. That's what I wanted to read. This is worth reading. Listen to what Paul says. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that... Now listen to his strategy. Listen to his strategy for the gospel going forth. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Does that plan seem like lunacy to you? I mean, has Paul been to church? Does he know how we act with one another? He does. And he goes on to say, and that's exactly what God intended. The church, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, is what he put in place to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only to proclaim it, but to demonstrate it. The church is the gospel made visible, where enemies get brought into the same room and worship and proclaim Jesus Christ together. If there is no better picture of how God, through the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ, takes enemies and makes them his children, I don't know what else is. All right, so finally, back to this dwelling place piece. We are built together. And let me just read to you what this picture is actually pointing us to of being a dwelling place for God. It's this picture of, of being a household. First Peter gives us a different picture of, or a more clear picture of what this might be pointing us to. He said, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. As we are built up into a a dwelling place for God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, there's actual uh, household needs that happen, right? He's saying, you're you're a priesthood. You're a sacrifice. And in a way, what he's saying is, is every single person who comes into this household has a part to play in this household. Every part is necessary. When we come to church, we we are communicating two things. We are both desperately needy and needed. We are needy of the gospel. That's why we're here. And we're needed by one another. I need you to be in my life, to confront me, to bear burdens, to cry with me. We need each other for that. And so, friends, maybe I just ask this question. Do you see yourself as being vital to God? Do you see yourself as being a vital part of the church community? And I know when we get here, people are like, well, you haven't asked me to be an officer, so no. You haven't asked me to be a leader in this way, so no. But I would say more than anything that we see in Scripture is what it means to be the body of Christ aren't these titles, but it's these pictures of us bearing one another's burdens, of praying with one another. Each brick is supporting the other through prayers, in resources, in encouragement, in offering our lives as examples and sacrifices for the sake of others. That's what it means to be in the household of faith. Now the key word that kind of, or key words that end all of this is it's saying this is done a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, by the Spirit. 
can't lose sight of the Spirit in all of this. And, and let me just give you a picture. Now, I don't know if you watch the Paralympics, but one of the most profound um, events in the whole thing was the 100-meter sprint. And if you watched it, what you saw were uh, most of these folks were, were visually impaired. Most of them were blind. And what would happen was uh, the, the person who was impaired had to, visually impaired, had to run with another sprinter. And they were literally against each other to the point where I thought they were kind of tied together like a three-legged race because they were so close, they would hit each other kind of the whole way down, and you could barely tell the difference in their strides. I followed the story in particular of David Brown, who uh, came down with what was called Kawasaki disease at 15 months old. By the age of 13, he had lost his sight, and he had been paired up with Jerome Avery, who was another sprinter. And what would happen is the gun would go off, and the two of them, if you looked at them from the side, you could not see the difference between their arms and legs. They looked identical. But the most beautiful part in this for me was Avery and how he was talking to Brown the whole way down the course. He was saying, drive, 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 stay tight, stay tight. And he's helping him stay with him so he doesn't run off track, so he keeps pushing. Cannot imagine what it would be like to run that race not being able to see. One person said, in the end, it should look like one person running. Initially, I thought, oh, God, that's a picture of the church and what you want. Us running side by side in that same manner. But as I thought about those last couple of words, by the Spirit, I actually said, no. I don't think that's the illustration of us running next to each other on the course or on the track. I actually think uh, the one runner who wasn't able to see is a picture of all of us together in one body. And that picture of Avery going, drive, drive, stick with me, go this way, is a picture of the Holy Spirit and His work in the church. Friends, can I just be honest with you? We can't do it. We can't do it. On our own, we will just constantly divide. We're just going brick by brick, build another wall. He calls us simply to stay in step with the Holy Spirit, as we trust Him, as we push into awkward conversations, as we forgive when people say dumb things to us, as we seek reconciliation instead of slinking to our corners or finding a place where everybody ideologically agrees with us, as we yield to the Spirit and stay in step with us, He builds us on that better foundation of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, how do we move from going from divided we stand to united we follow? We look at the identity offered us that we can only receive in Jesus. We look at the peace that he offers us through the blood of the cross. And then finally, we build on that firm foundation of Christ and who he is. Let me close this in prayer. Father, would you help us? Lord, we can't do it. We can't be a united church if it's not for your spirit. Doing what you've already done, taking enemies and reconciling us to you and to each other. Would you continue to do that work? Will you stop us where we've swerved off course? Will you convict us? Lord, will you help us to look to you in faith and repentance? We love you. In your name, amen.